Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. God's divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning, let's ask the Lord's guidance and direction that we can understand this difficult passage that we're covering this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Your word is written in such a way that it forces us to stop and pause and think and study, going back over the same passages again and again, each time understanding it more clearly and understanding how it relates to other passages of Scripture. And this passage that passages that we're looking at this morning are no exception. So, Father, we ask that we have concentration and that we're able to focus upon uh, what you have said and revealed in First John about love, that we may come to understand uh, the significance not only of our love for one another, but our love for you and how this correlates to every other aspect of our Christian life. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, give us clarity and concentration today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing, actually, a topical study based on where we arrived in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. That context in Ephesians 4 emphasized a command to be angry, but not to sin. Now, that's always bothered a lot of people. And when I taught through the passage in context, a lot of people texted me or emailed me and said that they had, that they thought that was the best explanation they had heard. And I've gone round and round because I've heard lots of the same explanations other people have, uh, have given. But the command there is um, that we are we become angry. Anger is is an emotion, and emotions just sort of flare up within us almost w- w- without volitional choice. Something happens. You get uh, somebody turns around and says something nasty to you, or uh, all of a sudden you see something on TV and you feel an immediate emotional response. It may not be anger in that case, but in other times it's anger, it's frustration, it's depression, discouragement, anxiety, it may be any of those things. But Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. Now, we know that anger is a sin. So apparently what he is telling us is that there are things that are sort of an automatic reflex response to circumstances, but we're not to follow through on those. We're not to sin. We're not to give in to that. And so the question is, well, how in the world can I do that? Because that's, that's, that's a real struggle. Just drive on the freeways of Houston any given time, and you can have the frustration of getting angry. 
So it doesn't go much beyond that. And so from there, I decided to talk about these spiritual skills. What are these skills that God has given us? And by looking at these 10 skills, and we've been doing this since uh, early February, uh, it has given us a chance to think through a lot of the important factors of the, of the Christian life, that we are not to just let our sort of um, visceral responses to difficult circumstances dominate our thinking. We are to exercise self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. And we are to respond in certain ways. So that's what we're looking at. And we've looked at these. Uh, walk. The first is confession of sin at the bottom because we're not going to go anywhere spiritually if we're not, the second point, walking by the Spirit. That walking by the Spirit or the beginnings of being able to walk by the Spirit can only take place once we have been restored to fellowship. Being restored to fellowship isn't talking about getting your salvation back. Uh, once we're saved, once we trust Christ as Savior, we are always uh, saved. We're always in God's family. We are never kicked out of God's family. And in John chapter 10, Jesus said, that if we are his, then he holds us in his hand, and no one can take us out. And then he said, and you're also in the grip of the Father, and no one can remove you from that grip. So we have a double grip on us, and we cannot lose that salvation. But we do sin. And a lot of people don't really understand what sin is because they have been taught by their culture that sins are really something very, very evil and that they don't understand that evil is defined in Scripture as obeying something other than God. It's idolatry. And that is to uh, do anything that violates God's, God's character. And so the original sin in Genesis 3 was eating a piece of fruit. Most people don't list that in their top two, three, five, ten, fifteen, or twenty sins. But anything done in disobedience to God is a sin. And Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of spiritual death for each and every one. But we have to accept that as ours. Once we do that, we are saved. But we still sin. We still have this sin nature, this, this corruption that is inherited uh, by our descent from Adam, the head of the race. So we have to confess sin. That restores us to fellowship. The analogy I like to use is that we are in God's house. That is a biblical uh, metaphor. I use it a little differently. We are in God's family. But when we sin, just like in your family, when you disobey your parents, you get sent to your room. Well, we get kicked out of the house, and we're outside the way to get back in is to confess sin, and then we're back in the house. Life occurs inside the house. Outside, it's darkness, and it's uh, death. A, we live like a spiritually dead person. There's no life, really, outside of being in the house. Now, that doesn't mean we're spiritually dead. It just means we're acting like a spiritually dead person. So walking by the Spirit is the, basically what it means to obey the word while we're in right relationship with the Lord so that we can maintain that intimate 
relationship we call fellowship, which is a term that has the idea of an intimate partnership of two people working towards a common goal. And in this case, one of the persons is the Holy Spirit, the other is you or me. And so when we are walking by the Spirit, who reveal, the question is, who revealed the Word? The Holy Spirit revealed the Word. He is the uh, agent of revelation. And so when it says later on in Galatians 5.16, uh, to walk by the Spirit, it's a different word than uh, 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 down around 5, what is it, about 5.28 uh, or 29, the walk by the Spirit, there's a totally different word than the one in Galatians 5.16. There in 5.16, it's walk, peripateo, to walk step by step by the Spirit. And the word used later on is a word that means to follow in the steps of someone or to march in ranks, but you're following in someone's steps. Well, what are those steps? It's like walking on the stepping stones of a trail. Well, who put down the stepping stones of the trail? God the Holy Spirit in his word. So the way we stay on the trail is to follow in the footsteps of the Holy Spirit. And that is how we maintain it. So that relates to the next category, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. In faith rest drill, we're trusting in the promises and the principles and the uh, revelation of God's word. In grace orientation, we orient our lives to the grace of God, being gracious to others just as God was gracious to us. And when we get down to e- Ephesians uh, t- uh, 4.30, um, we will be talking about being gracious to one another, graciously forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has graciously forgiven us. So this orientation to grace is critical to being able to develop the capacity for love and forgiveness, doctrinal orientation, aligning to God's word, and then a personal sense of our eternal destiny gets us focused on living today in light of eternity. Now, we will all, as believers in Christ, have an eternal destiny in heaven and with the Lord. However, there are some who are rewarded in addition uh, because of their walk with the Lord and their obedience in this life and their service to the Lord. Others will not. And um, one of the key areas of motivation for us is as we develop a love for God because we come to understand his love for us. In fact, when we get, uh, we probably won't get there until Uh, until next week, but when we get down to the fourth chapter, um, then we will discover that John says this is love, that he first loved us, that not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we um, respond to God's love at the cross by loving him, and then we grow in the our love for God. We then are to develop biblical love for all, and that is a command to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. But we have an additional mandate to love one another that's related to other believers, just as Christ loved us. Not easy, difficult, 
John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that leads to and it interacts with the occupation with Christ. These three all work and develop together. End result is we develop a peace, a tranquility, and share the happiness of God. That's our basic framework for what we're doing, and I covered that a little more because we have a number of visitors here this morning. So these connect together. So personal love for God provides our motivation. Biblical love for all mankind and Christian love for one another provide an evidence, especially the latter. Christ said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. He didn't say, by this, all men will know you are Christians. A Christian is someone who has trusted Christ as Savior. A disciple is someone who has decided they want to go beyond simply being born again or being saved. They want to be a student of the, of the Word. They want to be a student of Christ. They want to be a disciple. They want to move towards spiritual uh, maturity. Third, occupation with Christ is that we focus upon Jesus Christ. Just as he focused on the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we focus on the joy set before us, focusing on Christ as our pattern, uh, so that um, we will emulate him despite whatever pressures come our way. So the metaphor I've been using, the picture has been this soul fortress, and we're building these walls to provide this protection for our soul, and we're looking at these two, the personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. So far we've learned that there are two types of love mandated for us, the biblical love for all mankind and Christian love for one another. Second, we've learned that Christian love is not something we can manufacture. It is developed as a fruit of the Spirit, and that comes only as a result of walking by the Spirit. Third, in our study the last couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians 13, we have learned that love is the sine qua non, the without which nothing. It is the uh, necessary ingredient of the Christian life uh, for us to grow. It doesn't matter what else we do, how much we give, how much we serve, how much we get involved, how much we go through the externals. If it's not done with Christian love, then it's worthless, Paul says. And last we, last week we went through the characteristics of love, which are essentially the opposite of self-centeredness and arrogance. Defining love is its mental attitude toward others, which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity and thinks. It thinks first. It's a mental attitude, so that means it thinks. It's a thoughtful process. It's intellectual. It is not emotional. It thinks and acts toward others in a way that uh, is consistent with God's desire and standards. Christian love is impossible apart from a walk by the Spirit and spiritual growth. So just a reminder of application. We live our lives as as much as possible by walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit. That's a growth process. When you're a young believer, you're just it's you're, you're stumbling, you're crawling, you're bumping into walls. It takes a long time to study the Word and to grow. It doesn't happen overnight. 
We are to think about it. We're to pray about it. So that uh, especially our reactions to others, so um, we know that we are exhibiting and developing that Christian love. We're to pray for it. And third, we're not to get discouraged. We develop a biblical love for others over time. You'll look back after a decade or two and begin to see that God has made a difference. So that's our application. So now what we want to do is we study about biblical love. Uh, I'm going to skip over this quick review of, of, um, of these slides. Let me go here. We're going to go straight into 1 John um, this morning. Okay, what does 1 John teach about love? Now, I've got some introductory things to say here because of all the books, all the studies of Scripture that I have done over the last 40 years, I think 1 John is one of the most confusing for a lot of people. I think it's very difficult. And the reason I think it's difficult is partially due to translations and partially due to the fact that we don't really understand how John is using his vocabulary. And I was fortunate, I stumbled into this by divine providence, that when I went up to Preston City Bible Church to begin pastoring there in 98, I thought, I didn't know much about the congregation, I thought, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page when we talk about the gospel and we talk about grace. And I thought, now, what should, where would I go to make sure people really understand the gospel and really understand grace? And the first one is the gospel of John. And then along with that was Galatians. And another epistle that is problematic for people in understanding grace and understanding the gospel is James. So I taught those uh, together. Now, when I went through John... When you come towards the end of John, chapters 13 through 17, this is what is called the Upper Room Discourse. Chapters 19 through, um, uh, let me see, 18 and 19 focus on the arrest and trial and crucifixion of our Lord. 20 focuses on his resurrection appearances, and then 21 closes it out with the final mandates to to uh, Peter to shepherd his sheep, to feed the sheep, to instruct the lambs, and to provide spiritual nourishment. But what's interesting is that section from 13 through 17 is addressed to the disciples the night before he goes to the cross to instruct them on some of the things that would be different in the church age, that the spiritual life of a believer after the cross would be different. There would be different aspects to it. And one of the things that he does is tell them that after he leaves, he will send another comforter, God the Holy Spirit, who will indwell them and also remind them of the things that, uh, that Christ taught. And along with that, he talks about coming to know him. But a lot of us growing up in churches, certain church language, coming to know Jesus is used as a synonym for trusting in Christ, becoming a believer. That's not how 
Jesus used it in the upper room. It's not how John uses it in the Gospel of John. So when people read, uh, this is how we come to know him by keeping his commandments, they read that, well, we get saved by keeping his commandments. And that violates every other passage in Scripture. We are saved not by works, but by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift, the gift of God. So knowing Christ is not the same as being a believer in Jesus Christ for salvation. Knowing Christ is what comes afterwards. It's part of spiritual life. Another word that Jesus used in John 15, uh, 1, uh, 1 through 7, is to abide in him. Again, many people take that word abiding in Christ as being the same as believing in Christ. But once again, if you take it that way, you end up having to perform works as well. So there are other words, because the one who abides in Christ will love one another. Well, it makes it sound like, well, we have to love one another in order to be saved. And this leads to a lot of confusion. So it's important that we carefully look at, at how Jesus talked in John John. Uh, 13 through 17. So I taught through that passage, finished teaching through the Gospel of John, and then I thought, well, I've never taught 1 John. I've been afraid to get into it because it's very difficult. But now that I've got worked my way through the Gospel of John, I should go to 1 John. So I did. And as I began to read it through in the Greek text, having just studied 13 through 17, I realized that the vocabulary of John 13 through 17 was the vocabulary of 1 John. And if you don't understand John 13 through 17, you won't understand 1 John. And so there's a lot of confusion. So I've worked with this, I've taught this, I've gone over it many times. But we're going to try to be helpful here so that you can put it all together. And it's going to take a couple of weeks, so there'll be some good review. So when we look at 1 John, love is a key idea. It's one of about five important key words. Love, the Greek word agape, is used 28 times in the five chapters of 1 John. It's used in 17 verses. That tells us right away this is a very important concept in 1 John. If we misunderstand what he's saying there, we're just out in confusion. Second, we have to realize that among these are some difficult statements, which means how we interpret 1 John as a whole is very determinative. Let me use a somewhat superficial, but I think uh, simple illustration. Let's say you are expecting a a very nice, appropriate uh, love letter from your girlfriend or boyfriend. And what you get starts off very nice, and it sounds that way, but what it is is really a Dear John letter or a Dear Joanna letter. You are, she's breaking up or he's breaking up with you. 
Well, if you start off with the idea that this is a love letter, you start reading it that way, you begin to scratch your head and think, this is confusing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And then you read something and go, Do they, what is she saying here? What, what is he saying here? What, what's really going on? And then you have to go back and rethink it because you started off with the misconception that this was going to be a letter or an email going in one direction, and it turns out it's going in a completely different direction. So you have to rethink your understanding of what the theme is. And that's why this is important, because there's basically two ways of looking at John. This is the third, first John. This is the third point. And that is that some think that he's talking to believers all the way through. And whatever you do, it's, it's either he's talking to believers all the way through or he's talking to unbelievers all the way through. It can't, can't be both. Some people are inconsistent, but you have to be consistent. So if he's talking about believers all the way through, then what he's comparing and contrasting are believers who are uh, those who are walking closely with the Lord, walking in the light, and those that are still sinning and acting like they're an unbeliever, though they're still saved, they're walking in darkness. And so you have that view. Another popular view, and I read something, I haven't had time to go through all the historical investigation, but I read something recently that suggested that the view that he's writing unbelievers uh, is relatively new, that that came along in the... Um, in the early 20th century, but nevertheless, the theology that would be present there is much older. So that is that this is a contrast between the way believers should be and the way unbelievers are, so that you can tell, oh, I'm not walking in love, I'm not walking in the light, I'm not abiding, therefore I'm not a Christian. That's where that leads, okay? So I want to show you that John is writing consistently to uh, to believers. But first, let's get, look at love. So this verb, agapao, is used 37 times in the Gospel of John. We're going to go, I'm taking you back to John 13, um, uh, 13 to 21. It's used 37 times in John. That's a lot in, in those uh, eight chapters. It's seven times, but it's only used seven times before chapter 13, but it's used 20 times between 13 and 16. That's the emphasis. In the upper room discourse, which is 13 to 17, Jesus uses love 20 times. You've got to understand that's what he's talking about. And then the rest of these, there's, there's three more that come in the last chapter in John 21. Love is a major theme, but it's not used at all between 17 until you get to close to the end. I mean, in 17 to 20, it's not used again until you get halfway through or almost to the end of chapter 21. Those chapters cover the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Christ, which depicts love, the love that he talked about in 13 through 19. The noun for love is used seven times, but it's only used one time before chapter 13. It's used five times in chapter 15 and one time in chapter 17. The point here is the emphasis 
that all the uses of love are within this section of what is called the upper room discourse or the upper room teaching. Now, there's another word for love, and that's phileo is the verb, and philos is the noun. And it's used only four times before chapter 13, and the other nine times are within the upper room discourse. And six times only before chapter 13, and um, I mean only two times before chapter 13, and and six times um, within that section, except for 17 to 20. Okay, so it's a real concentration in those areas. That's very important, but it's not you. Phileo and philos are not used at all in First John. So we ask the question: To whom is John writing? John calls his readers little children. He also refers to some of them as fathers and some of those as young men. He's talking within the family of God, believers. So he calls them little children whose sins are forgiven for his namesake. That means they're believers. Their sins are forgiven for his namesake. He calls the fathers those who have known him from the beginning. And he writes to the young men as those who have overcome the evil one and in whom the word of God abides. Those are all descriptions of someone who is a believer. So he's writing to believers just based on that. Second, he says that they abide which is a term for fellowship, and that's the result of studying its usage in John 15 within the upper room discourse. It always has that idea of remaining in close, intimate relationship, fellowship, walking in the light with Jesus. First John 2, 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Walking is a metaphor for the Christian life. So if you claim to abide in the light, abide in Christ, rather, you are to live as Christ lived. If you're not living that way, you're not abiding. doesn't mean you're not saved. They're not synonyms. Third, John refers to hating brothers. He said, he said we are to love one another if anyone hates his brother. Biblically, a brother is another member of the body of Christ. Therefore, hating your brother has to mean that you're a believer. An unbeliever does not hate a Christian brother, or he may hate a Christian brother, but that's not the issue. The point here is to hate your, if you're a believer, to hate your brother means you're a believer and they're a believer. So again, um, the haters, it's not just that they're believers, they're just uh, Christians who are not walking as they should. Both must be believers. So First John 2.10 says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. So that's loving one another as Christ has loved us, John 13, 34, and 35. But he who hates his brother, well... If he's your brother, then you have to both be believers. Is in darkness and walking in darkness. So there we learn that a believer can walk in darkness. Paul even states that when we'll, we'll get there soon in Ephesians chapter five, where he says that we are uh, to to walk like children of the light. 
not in darkness. Fourth, he uses the first person plural pronoun we, which at the very beginning refers to the apostles. Because he says at the, at the beginning he talks about the fact that they are uh, witnesses of what we heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That doesn't include his recipients because they didn't personally hear Jesus, walk with Jesus, touch Jesus, see him. So it's narrow. But by the time you get down into uh, verse 5, um, uh, a little bit later, about, probably about verse 6, where he starts to say, if we say that we have fellowship, he, it's broadening out to include his audience and that's very clear by the time you get down to the um, end of chapter 1. So somewhere in there he broadens the reference to we. But my point is that all the way through here he's talking to believers. So when we want to understand what John says about love. We uh, look at how he uses it. Simple concordance study will give you the, there, there are three groupings. So these are important passages in 1 John 2, starting in verse 3 and going down to verse 11, he's going to um, talk about the importance of love. We'll look at verse 3, and in verse 3 he says, Now by this we know that we know him. But by this, he's talking about what he's going to say in the second part of the sentence. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, see, a lot of people will read that and say, oh, see, right there, if you are saved, if you know him, then you're going to keep his commandments. You don't keep your commandments, so therefore you're not saved. Well, you haven't read John very closely if you think that's what he is saying. In John chapter 14, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And they, he, he is telling them that he's going to leave and he's going to go to heaven and he's going to prepare a place for them. And they're confused. And Peter says, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going or how to get there. And so the Lord answers that question. And then Philip comes along and says, well, Lord, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, who's been made clear already, Philip's a believer. He's saved. He said, Philip, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? See what that means? Is that Philip is saved. He's been walking, living with the Lord day in and day out for three years. But Jesus says to him, you don't know me. You really haven't grasped who I am because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the point here is that, that coming to know Christ is something that happens after we're saved and it's a process, refers to a process of maturity. So, and as a result of that, we learn what his commandments are, and we obey them. O obeying commandments is not how you're saved. You're saved by trusting in Christ 
who went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. We're not saved by keeping his commandments. That's works. 1 John 2, 4, John goes on to say, He who says, or he makes a claim, See, I know Jesus. I've, I've grown. I'm mature. And does not keep his commandments. So there's a contradiction. He claims to know Christ, but he doesn't keep his commandments. John says he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, that's an interesting phrase here. The truth is not in him. In Paul's epistles, Paul uses a technical phrase called being in Christ, which refers to our position. But that's Paul's language. John does not use that language. This is a basic principle of biblical interpretation. Different writers will use the same phrase with different meanings, so you have to understand the context of each writer. and how, and how Because in inspiration, God the Holy Spirit is not violating their personality, their background, their personal style of writing, but he is going to oversee and guarantee that that which they write is without error. So John says, if you claim to know him, in other words, if you claim that you have grown and matured and you're not obedient, you're not keeping his commandments, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. He leaves out an important verb there. He does this same thing I'm going to show you in just a minute in John 15. He leaves the verb out initially, and it's called ellipsis. And the verb that should be there before in him, just as you have it in other places, is abide. The truth is not abiding in him. In other words, this is talking about, about fellowship. And then 1 John 2, 5 says, but whoever, see, he's going through contrast, the one who says he knows and doesn't obey, well, the truth really isn't in him. It's not abiding in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love, and this is the love, uh, 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 the love for God, the love for God is perfected. And the Greek word has the idea not of flawless perfection, but of maturity. The love for God is being matured in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. Now, again, he's leaving out that verb abide. I'll give you an example in just a minute. So what we see when we analyze these passages is to know him equals keeping his commandments or keeping his word. And that's the same as love for God is maturing. He's not talking about getting saved. Now, in in first in John 15, John 15, Jesus starts off I had this here a minute ago. I thought this morning. No. Okay. In John 15, hold your place here. Let's turn to John 15. In John 15, let me get back to where the slide I was at. Okay, John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Then he says, every branch in me. He leaves out the verb. He starts off with an ellipsis. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, how do I know that he left the verb out? 
Skip down to verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. So John's style is he leaves the verb out at first, and then he introduces it. Usually you have writers who will use the verb, and then they leave it out afterward. But John leaves the verb out in the the first couple of times he uses the phrase in him. But then in verse 4 he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. In verse 2, he said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So to bear fruit, according to verse 4, you have to abide in him. So that shows that he just left the verb out at the beginning in verse 2, but then he adds it because he wants to build to that understanding of the importance of the verb. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. Now, I want to go back to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That is a bad translation. It is not he takes away. The verb also is used many places to mean he lifts up. And a detailed study, which I've done in the past, on how they grew grapes in the ancient world, Uh, there's a lengthy section in an ancient Jewish writer who wrote the same time called Pliny, and he describes this process of viticulture. And a man I was in seminary with had his master's degree in viticulture from Texas A&M and has written quite a number of important articles explaining this. And what would happen is in the initial years of the growth of the vine, as branches are put out, and they're young branches, and they're not yet bearing fruit on those branches, what the farmer would do is that the vine dresser would tie them up on the trellis so that they can get more sunlight, and then the second year they will be able to grow fruit. So he's talking about, Jesus is talking about a process here. But abiding has to do with that work of fellowship. It is not equivalent to salvation. So as we go through, we come to a a second point in verse 2-9 where John says, he who says he is in the light. Now, he, he starts off with one thread. This is one of the difficult times things about John. Think about how you would weave a rope. How would you weave a rope? You have three or four threads. So you take the green thread and you overlap it through the red thread. Then what do you do? Then you go to a blue thread and you overlap it. And then you go back to those first ones and bring them over. And then maybe you go to a black thread and you weave that back. So that's how John is. He's taking one line of thought. Then he will stop and take another line of thought. So in verses uh, three, uh, 3 down to 8, or uh, yeah, 3 down to 8, he's talking about knowing God and keeping his commandments and the relationship there. Then in verses 
9 through 11, he's talking about the light and darkness, and then the one who hates his brother is in darkness. So 3, 4, 5, and 6 are talking about abiding and obeying. Then he changes, and he talks about light and darkness, and then he brings in that next thread in verse 10, he who loves his brother abides. See, he gets abides from verses 3 through 7, and he weaves that thread in. So what he is saying when you get down to uh, verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. Verse, going, go back to verse 9. What did he say about light? He who says he is in the light is like the person who says he knows Jesus and hates his brother. It's like the person who says he knows Jesus and doesn't do his commandments. Loves God, doesn't do his commandments. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He, he, he doesn't say he's not saved. He says he's not walking in the light. He's walking as a child of darkness. Paul says, but you are light. Walk as children of light. Now, why would he tell someone who is light to walk as a child of light if they didn't have the option of walking as a child of darkness? So you have to think carefully about these things. So what he is saying is he is saying that there are characteristics of a believer. And the characteristic of a believer that is walking closely with the Lord and growing is he loves his brother and he abides in the light. In other words, he stays in fellowship, continues to walk in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But in contrast, you have other believers that aren't that haven't been taught or they don't care and they hate their brother they hate other christians and they're walking in darkness and he doesn't know where he's going uh, scripture is compared to light it is the, we walk in the light of his word so they're ignorant and they are blind but not like a spiritually dead person all they need to do is confess sin and they're going to be restored to fellowship, start reading the word, and God will enlighten his eyes. <clears throat> so we see here that the one who hates his brother is the one who's walking in darkness. And that equals a passage in 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, the we there's believers. If we say that we have fellowship in him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. So the one who says he's in the light and hates his brother is the same as the person who doesn't have fellowship and he's not practicing doing the truth. The one who walks in the light is equivalent to the one who has fellowship with one another. So 1 John 1, 6 and 7 say, If we say that we have fellowship with him... And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, that partnership with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And the way that happens is First John, First John 1 night. So our conclusion is that hating, the phrase hating his brother 
means that the one who hates must also be a brother. He must be a believer. So believers can hate other believers. That doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they're not living like they're saved. So, first of all, we only have fellowship with one, one another, typo there, as we are walking in the light. We only have fellowship with one another as we are both walking in the light. That fellowship has to do with an intimate partnership between two people. It can be two believers or a believer in the Holy Spirit, but they're walking in partnership toward a common goal of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. The one who loves his brother is walking in the light, in the light of God's word. He's doing what God says to do. He's obeying the commandment to love your brother as yourself. I mean, love your neighbor as yourself and love your brother as Christ loved the church. Third, the one who hates his brother is in darkness. He walks in darkness. He's not being obedient. He's a disobedient believer. Fourth, the one who walks in dark, darkness lies and is not doing the truth. But they're saved. Now, negatively, when we get down to verse 15, we read, uh, the next element here is do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Does that mean he's not saved? Not at all. It just means that he is loving the way the world does things, it's comfortable because that's the way you, you, we grow up before we become believers. And so we love the things of the world. But James tells us loving the world is enmity with God. It's hatred for God. It's either one or the other. First John 2, 5 says, Whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is matured in him. By this we know we are in him. So this is the key. We are to keep God's word, which means that as a believer, we will have to keep his word to mature in our love for God. Next, friendship with the world is enmity toward God, James 4, 4. So we are not to love the world. We are to love God. And that means turning our back on the thinking of the world. It's a decision. We're going to not think like the world thinks with their Ideas, ideology, values, worldview, things of that nature. The one who loves the world is a believer who has not overcome the world. He hasn't grown. The one who loves the world has not developed in his love for the Father. And see here, the one who has not developed his love for the Father is not keeping his word. So when we get into all of these passages, what we recognize is that the language is very important to understand John. He's not contrasting believer with unbeliever. He's a tr contrasting the believer who is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in fellowship, walking in the light, and as they mature, they begin to develop the fruit of the Spirit, which includes loving your brother. In contrast, the person who's not walking with the Lord, who's not walking in the light, is walking in darkness, they're going to manifest the same characteristics as an unbeliever. 
They're going to look like and act like an unbeliever. They have the value systems of the unbelieving world because they love the world rather than loving God. And that's the, the decision every Christian has to make every day when we wake up and we get out of bed and we're thinking about the day. Are we going to be living today in light of everything that God has done for us? Are we going to live our lives in the light of God's word? Are we going to live our lives so that we are going to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity? Or are we going to love the world? Are we going to be intimidated by the values and the pressures that come from the culture around us? Are we going to be impressed by the values of the culture around us and live that way? But to live that way is to follow a path that is self-destructive. It's not going to bring life. So that's the issue. Now, that just takes us through the first part of this, where it focuses on the fact that there's either the believer who loves his brother or he hates his brother. That's the contrast. So we're going to continue to see how that theme is developed. Uh, two more sections in First John, and we'll do that when we come back next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things. It's, it's difficult thinking our way through what John says here because we really have to get our minds into John's way of talking, John's language, John's vocabulary, and it's different from the way in which a lot of uh, a lot of us perhaps may think that these words w- would mean. So, Father, help us interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. Help us to learn to accurately understand your word. And above all, may that lead to our being challenged that we are not to love the world around us. We are to love you. And the way to love you is to learn your commandments. We can't obey your commandments if we don't know your, your word. And so we have to know your word. And to know your word should lead to us learning all that you have provided for us and challenge us to live for you. Because Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And there are many, many Christians who are off the path, but Scripture says there's only two paths, the path to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, walking in the light, and the path that leads to a death-like existence without happiness, without meaning, without values, without purpose. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone listening to this message here today or online, that they might realize that keeping God's commandments is not how we get saved. Keeping God's commandments is how we grow. But to be saved, Christ lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. Because he was qualified and sinless, he could go to the cross and die in our place, pay the sin penalty. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that that might be clear, that the way to salvation is to trust in Christ, not in ourselves, for all of us are sinners, and that we are all, we have all fallen short of your glory. And all of our Works of righteousness are just filthy rags. But, Father, Christ died for us that by 
uh, his death, his righteousness is imputed to us through faith when we trust in him so that we are saved because we have his righteousness, not our own. Father, we pray that you would, the Holy Spirit would just make that clear to each one here. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.